and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Welcome everyone to the Saturday Dharma Talk. Today, Hannah Mira will be giving the lecture. Hannah's Dharma name is He Jin Sancho, Resolute Compassion, Clear Illumination. Hannah began her practice in the 90s in Chicago temples and periods of work practice at Green Gulch. In 2000, she retired early from a career in applied sociology and began six years at San Francisco Zen Centers, Tassajara City Center, and Green Gulch. She was ordained as a priest in 2006. Since then, she has moved to, the, to be close to young granddaughters, first in Santa Cruz and now in Berkeley. She was active in Santa Cruz Zen Center and also in a Vipassana group uh, in Santa Cruz and served as Shuso. In 2015, she moved to Berkeley and to practice at Berkeley Zen Center. Her Dharma name was given in 2019 by her teacher, uh, Hosan. She is currently vice president of the BTC board and has been very active on the Many Communities One Sangha Coordinating Committee and she also oversees Zendo ceremonies. Lastly, she's a fine sewing teacher and has helped many a student uh, sew their robes for ordination. And speaking of ordination, she will receive Dharma transmission along with Carol Paul this summer from Hosan. Please welcome our speaker, Anna Miram. Well, I was um, during the last period of Zazen, sitting there crying a little bit. I'm thinking, oh well, Dean cried in her last talk, so I guess I can cry in my talk. And I think what it is, is I care so much about this material. Um, where, our, where our Heart Sutra comes from. And it comes from a very, very long time ago. So I have been thinking this is my final talk on the Heart Sutra. Um, it's the core of the belief system that underpins and sustains our practice, our practice of zazen, our expressions in service, what we read and how we talk. At every service, in every ceremony, we chant the Heart Sutra. Some of us have chanted it so many times that with no intention at memorizing it, it just simply entered our bodies and is always available to us. The Heart Sutra proclaims the boundlessness of all life, not things separate and related, but all completely interrelated. The version we chant uses the word emptiness, meaning empty of own being or of separate being. A newer translation of the Heart Sutra by Kaz Tanahashi and Joan Halifax expresses this more clearly and I want to read it. I love it. 
It's titled The Sutra on the Heart of Realizing Wisdom Beyond Wisdom. Avalokiteshvara, who helps all to awaken, moves in the deep course of realizing wisdom beyond wisdom, sees that all five streams of body, heart, and mind are without boundary, and frees all from anguish. O Shariputra, who listens to the teachings of the Buddha, form is not separate from boundlessness. Boundlessness is not separate from form. Form is boundlessness. Boundlessness is form. Feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and discernment are also like this. O Shariputra, boundlessness is the nature of all things. It neither arises nor perishes, neither stains nor purifies, neither increases nor decreases. Boundlessness is not limited by form, nor by feelings, perceptions, inclinations, or discernment. It is free of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, free of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and any object of mind, of the mind. It is free of ignorance and the end of ignorance. Boundlessness is free of old age and death and free of the end of old age and death. It is free of suffering, arising, cessation, and path, and free of wisdom and attainment. Being free of attainment, those who help all to awaken, abide in the realization of wisdom beyond wisdom, and live with an unhindered mind. Without hindrance, the mind has no fear. Free from confusion, those who lead all to liberation embody profound serenity. All those in the past, present, and future who realize wisdom beyond wisdom manifest unsurpassable and thorough awakening. Know that realizing wisdom beyond wisdom is no other than this wondrous mantra, luminous, unequaled, and supreme. It relieves all suffering. It is genuine, not illusory. So set forth this manner, mantra of realizing wisdom beyond wisdom. Set forth this mantra that says, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasamgate, Bodhisvaha. Next thing is to memorize that one. My first talk was about how we came to have this Heart Sutra in our daily practice at Berkeley Zen Center and at all Zen centers worldwide. This is the thrilling story of how a young Buddhist monk in China, Chuan Sang, was shown a copy of the Heart Sutra by an old monk he befriended. And because of his keen interest in Buddhist scriptures, including those not yet available in China, he traveled to India and back in an epic 16-year journey, starting out in the year 629 and returning to China in 645 AD. He walked and rode various means of transportation um, to India and then all the way down to the bottom of India and all the way back, searching for sutras and, and brought back 
657 Sanskrit sutras and commentaries with the aim of translating them into Chinese and bringing the Buddhism they contained home to China. One sutra um, fell off when crossing a stream and got destroyed and he waited at that spot until its replacement could be brought to his um, entourage coming back to China. He was permitted to settle down and work on his translations and then and one of his assistants was a person who later became Emperor Tai and with the support of Emperor Tai he was able to found and grow a Sutra Translation Institute translating primarily the Prajnaparamita Sutras from Sanskrit into Chinese and it was a big institute with a lot of translators. His stories of how the Heart Sutra, um, Heart Sutra's magical powers saved his life from the dangers of bandits and weather and wild animals on his journey led to its daily use in Chinese Zen centers. And from there, because he was the head of this highly esteemed Sutra Translating Institute, um, it, that carried on worldwide so that all Zen practice centers worldwide to this day chant this, this sutra. Um, my second talk on the Heart Sutra was about the consonance between the Heart Sutra emptiness and the, and the, the understanding of boundlessness and that of philosophers of science particle physicists, ecologists. And I think I was a little misleading in my great enthusiasm about that essential similarity in the idea of boundlessness of all life. Um, and I'm, I find it very exciting to be part of a spiritual practice that's, that is similar to these um, inspiring and enlightening scientific understandings. Um, and Kaz Tanahashi in his wonderful book that I'm going to be talking and talking about, the Heart Sutra, um, tells about some scientists who were inspired by the Heart Sutra to do their work and to find what they found. Um, and yet this consonance is not what our emptiness is about. As Kaz Tanahashi has pointed out in this wonderful book, science studies changes in, object, in objects. In our practice, we and subjects and objects are not separate. Now, science actually is discovering that the observer, the scientist, changes the objects that are observed. So they could come along more with our, um, our perspective on boundlessness than, than they yet do. In Tanahashi's words, the process of Buddhist understanding, including the understanding of the Heart Sutra and the process of scientific research are completely different. And this is what I think I didn't say in that talk. In fact, the characteristics of their logic are completely opposite. The former is intuitive and self-experiential, that's our practice, 
calling for faith and spiritual practice. The latter is intellectual, calling for doubt and physical proof. I think we just know. Did you hear that bird singing while I was um, speaking the Tanahashi version of the Heart Sutra? Anyway, I think we know. The concept of emptiness arose in the first century BC and developed for hundreds of years after that and was expressed in some of the world's earliest written materials, chanted, written, interpreted, expanded. Um, as the Oxford scholar Zacchetti wrote, it was a world in which there wasn't a concept of an original text, a key text, the source, the one, the, the idea that we carry now. Instead, there were what he called recensions, a word for me, a new word for me. As scholars copied and interpreted the text, those interpretations were added, and the text expanded in size and complexity. Thus, we have the Prajnaparamita Sutras in 8,000 lines, in 18,000 lines, 25,000, 100,000 not mistaken inclusions of commentary, errors inserted in an original text, but a kind of texts that were considered legitimate, different from how we think about texts. So we're in debt not only to Swan Song for his difficult journey, his never-ending determination to make Buddhist sutras available, but to all those who copied them, chanted them, buried them for safekeeping, found them, translated them, studied them over a period of over 1,200 years. I have long been inspired by the young man who set off walking on a long and dangerous journey to bring sutras home and start the process of making them available beyond linguistic and political barriers. In my recent quest to understand from what early sutras exactly our Heart Sutra arose, I've been deeply impressed by the exceptionally difficult work of the scholars who helped me understand the origin of this sutra. Suzuki Roshi sent his students to study with Cal professor Edward Kanze, who studied and translated all the Prajna Paramitra Sutras into English. There's a practice of putting the, not here, but other in other lands of putting Prajnaparamitra sutras on an altar because they're thousands of pages and fanning them and bowing to them on the altar as a way of including them, um, respecting them, but as if they have been read, um, as we do every day chant that one short piece. So here I think we, I would like to suggest a small practice. I considered bringing Kanze's books in here and having a little presentation like we do with uh, the tray and putting them on the altar. And I was tempted all the way till a few minutes ago. Um, <laughs> but um, what I'd like to suggest is that we could at least have a small practice of going to the shelf in our Berkeley Zen Center library where Edward Kanze's books are kept. It's on that shelf that backs on the kitchen kind of right there, and um, holding them in our hands and fanning the pages to appreciate the hard work, skill, and knowledge and devotion 
involved in bringing them to us, at least touch them. <laughs> uh, we can also be inspired by the more contemporary scholars, Red Pine, Kaz Tanahashi, Jan Natier, Stefano Zacchetti, on whose work I have leaned. Their work we can study and in doing so are aware of the long preparation and long scholarly devotion that yields their gifts. They are really akin to Juan Song. Although they did not take his long physical journey, they devoted comparable years to this work. I first read about the Heart Sutra in a book by Red Pine, so beautifully constructed, so clear, little book, wonderful book. Um, and then the intensely scholarly work of Indiana University Professor Jan Nattier in 1992, her, she published an article about the origins of the Heart Sutra. In my recent studies for these talks, I'm indebted to Kaz Tanahasi's work and um, in his book. And this time around, I've also been deeply moved by the scholarship of Stefano Zacchetti of Oxford University. These are the modern day explorers deep into the world of ancient texts. We have a copy of Kaz Tanahashi's book in the library, but I think this isn't a book you simply borrow to read. It's one that you live with, absorb with effort and continue to study. The same is true of Stefano Zacchetti's book, which can be downloaded, although I think that's not a nice way to have it, but you can have it on your computer. My big question this time around is where, really where, did the Buddhist conception of emptiness arise? How did early Buddhists come to this? Scholars have written, beginning with Edward Kanze, that the Heart Sutra comes from the Paramita Sutras, chanted and then successively written down in southern India between 1000 BC and 1000 AD. Where I wanted to know in these sutras was the expression of emptiness, boundlessness that formed the Heart Sutra. How did Buddhists in southern India in that period come out of a very different practice to this new one? What was their practice? Was this new Buddhism a reaction against the extreme specificity of the Savastabhadans as Red Pine suggested in his book? And I want to read you the beautiful way he tells us about this. The teaching of this sutra is known as Prajnaparamita. The word Prajna in Sanskrit for wisdom is, is a, that word and is a combination of pra meaning before and jna meaning to know. From the same combination the, the Greeks got prognosis and while the Greeks referred to the knowledge of what lies before us, namely the future course of events, the Buddhists of ancient India referred to what comes before knowledge. Shunryo Suzuki referred to this as beginner's mind. In the centuries after the Buddha's nirvana, however, the focus of cultivation was on knowledge, jhana, rather than prajna. The members of the earliest Buddhist sects held that reality was a complex system of dharmas that could be known and that liberation depended on such knowledge. One of the earliest and most important texts of the Savastavadins was 
Abhidharma Jhana Prasthana, the source of knowledge through the study of dharmas, which was compiled about 200 BC and which set forth the matrix of dharmas as the basis of all that we know or can know. It, was a, it would appear, according to Red Pine, that it was in reaction to this emphasis on jhanas that the compilation of prajna texts occurred, finding, focusing on wisdom as opposed to knowledge. So that's what we've inherited, this very different way of practicing Buddhism. So reading the oldest part, I thought I'd go to the oldest Prajnaparamita Sutra, and that's in the Sutra in 8,000 lines, the, 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 the first part of, that is written down there are from the chants, the, the chanting, the memorization of the Sutra that people chanted and, and learned from each other. And so I went there thinking, surely, let's see, is there emptiness there? And there wasn't. Um, it was beautiful stuff, but not emptiness. Um, and it turns out that scholars have determined that the Heart Sutra came from a later version called the Maha Prajna Paramita Sutra, also called the, and maybe someone knows how to pronounce this, um, Dazidu Lun. It, I think that's a Chinese. There's Linda. Do you know how to? Nope. Darn it. Um, translated from the Sanskrit into Chinese by Kumarajiva, one of the great early translators. The scholarship on the origin of the Heart Sutra is complex, and for that I recommend uh, Kaz Tanahashi's book um, and also Stefano Zacchetti's. And in that Prajna Paramita Sutra, Dazidu Lun, one does find much attention to emptiness and to other core topics of Indian Buddhism. It, the table of contents reads what we have been taught from the past. Um, Kaz Tanahashi wrote, we can now say that an unidentifiable unidentifiable person in China compiled the shorter text Heart Sutra. This compilation was an assemblage of three parts, an introductory part starting at Avalokiteshvara, a core section from the Dazidu Lun that quotes Karmarajiva's Karma Chinese version of the Mahaprajna Paramita Sutra and the mantra at the end. Swan Song had a key role in the formation of this Heart Sutra. He simplified the wording, making it chantable, making it the Heart Sutra that people worldwide chant daily. There have been theories that he wrote it, but remember the story that we've, we've found, we've inherited, which is that he learned about it from an old monk and then went to find out more about that and other sutras. But he did have a key role in making it the Heart Sutra that we know now. The Heart Sutra we chant starts with Avalokiteshvara when practicing deeply the Prajna Paramita. What is this Prajna Paramita? This term that titles all those ancient sutras. At base, Prajna Paramita means 
perfection of wisdom. And perfection of Buddhist wisdom is the wisdom that all ourselves and all life is boundless, inextricably interconnected. Prajnaparamita is a feminine word represented by a feminine figure. For those on Zoom, it's in the, there's a picture in the chat for you and for everybody here. This is Prajnaparamita here on the altar right in front of Buddha. Our Prajnaparamita is a clay figure made by longtime member Rebecca Maeno, centered right under the Buddha. Rebecca Maeno's study of Buddhist imagery led her to begin sculpting images, especially Jizos and Prajnaparamitas. When Sanghas, including Berkeley Zen Center, began discussing the importance of women's practice and their less than prominent position in the Buddhist litur liturgy, um, Rebecca began making Jizos and Prajnaparamitas for Sanghas around the country. She created our own Prajnaparamita. Um, um, Karen Dakotas, who's a Buddhist teacher and former resident and dear friend of our Sangha, and the faces of Rebecca's daughters were the models for this statue. And Karen told me that she took care to follow exactly Dogen's instructions in the Fukan Zazenge on how to sit in Zazen posture. So as we're looking at her, those of you who are Chidans and others who come up to the altar to have a good look at this, we can study exactly that position, except for the, of course, holding the things that Prajnaparamita holds. But this is um, from Dogen, the way to sit. Um, Prajna Paramita is one of the six paramitas, the six perfections that guide our practice. Giving, ethical conduct, patience, effort, concentration, wisdom. Wisdom is Prajna Paramita. The practice of wisdom, the wisdom of emptiness, the wisdom that guides our compassion for all life. All that I breathe, say, do, is not contained within me. It is interconnected with all else. When we practice this, this is the perfection of wisdom. When this is what you believe, you stop, sit down, and breathe. That's what we do. Well, I don't know how long it's been, but I'm awfully tired of talking. <laughs> what time is it? No. Oh, it's 10 to 11. 10 to 11. Well, so we have plenty of time to hear what other people are thinking about Prajnaparamita. Ellen. So I um, was taking care of my granddaughter, who's a little baby in Seattle, and she would only go to sleep if you sang lullabies to her, which I ran out of my repertoire very quickly, and I started chanting the Prajnaparamita, mm -hmm. uh, and I probably chanted it. 300 or 400 times over the course of a month. But the word that I ended up sort of stumbling on was, and it's different, you know, Kaz uses the word manifest Prajnaparamita, but the way we do it, we say depends on. And those seem really different to me. 
And I don't say for me manifest solves that question. So I just wondered if you had a thought on that. Mm -hmm. Did people get to hear what Ellen said? No. Yeah. Um, so Ellen um, has been um, having the great joy of taking care of a tiny granddaughter in Seattle. And some of us have been treated to a video of that granddaughter, which um, endears her to my heart. And um, <laughs> um, giving her, singing her lullabies to go to sleep, um, Ellen also hit on chanting um, the Heart Sutra to her. Um, and I love that because what I did, like a dirge, was to sing the folk song Barges to my granddaughter. Do you know that? Or, oh, well, I'll sing it for you sometime about now. Um, but I did it like a dirge, and um, Heart Sutra, much better choice, went into her. Went into her. How precious. Um, and Ellen asks about the meaning of um, manifest the... Well, yeah, it depends on Prajnaparamita or manifest So in there, there are different words, manifest and depends on. I'm so used to depends on and feeling that meaning. Well, tell me about that then. Okay. Because <laughs> that's really what I was questioning. When we are our practice, Well, it's both, isn't it? When we are our practice, we lean on, we lean into, we depend on our understanding of prajnaparamita, of emptiness. That is our center of our compass. Um, in in doing our practice, we manifest it. So how do you choose? We can't have two words. So I think we need both. But what do you think? Well, I think it's as you say, actually, depending on the circumstance, sometimes we manifest and sometimes we depend. Uh, for me, I would probably want to go back to the Sanskrit and look at the glosses of the word that's being translated, uh, which we don't have to do right now. But we can do it. Yeah, yeah, you can you can do that. And uh, then, you know, you look at, it, it's like the original construction of the Constitution. You know, you you look at what the original wording is, and then you also have to understand what is it in our lives? And so in our lives, I think it's both. It's like we take the three refuges, which means we have a place to find refuge, but also we are the refuge. So I just, I'm interested in the words, so I would go back, but then I'm interested in the practice that flows from the words. Yeah. Yeah. Ross. 
Whoops. Oh. Better late than never. Oh. Edward Kanza's uh, translation of the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra, which is contained within the Heart, the Prajnaparamita uh, Sutra. So I wanted to. <laughs> well, you could hold it up, and I would bow. You would hold it up. Okay. Yeah, and I would bow, and then I would hold it. You're the Jisha for a moment, and I, yeah, okay. And then we would okay. on oh. off. Oops. Go ahead. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I wonder what you were leaving the room about, Ross. I was driving my car back to my. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Can I say something else about yes. <laughs> what 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 Pat was describing at the beginning about the fanning? This is part of the daily liturgy at at training monasteries. During service, you're brought a big stack of the Prajnaparamita literature. In these the Japanese bindings of books is fan-like. Um, mm. and so you know, the uh, simulation of reading is you fan the whole book and you fan it back and you put it down, you pick up the next volume, and this is this is part of the service like every every day. And it's a big stack of books, it takes like ten minutes to do oh, it. Wow. And yeah. God forbid you don't do it and you know, those books can go kaflooey. You mean if you don't do it correctly? Yeah, if you don't if you don't have the grace of like really finding the rhythm of it. But but that's part of the everyday liturgy. Another thing people get trained to do. Yes, trained. <laughs> mm. um, Peter had his hand up, and but uh, is anybody online? Raise your digital hand so so I can for sure see you. Okay, but so far no. Yes. Uh, I recall. From my early years of practice, uh, specifically at San Francisco Zen Center, we studied the Abhidharma Kosha uh, for a couple of three years, and uh, every every study session would open with a a recitation of all seventy-five dharmas. So we were memorizing the dharmas either in English or and sometimes the, the the class wouldn't start for a little while because. Nobody was quite prepared to recite, but it always took place. Uh, but further, I want to say that uh, my experience of doing that, of looking very closely at each dharma, and the, uh, and it seemed like there was just a thin veil between that approach and emptiness. And so it was almost as though my experience of that was that uh, it was the next step from studying all the dharmas in their particularity and looking closely at them that you slid into, oh, this is all related to each other. It must not be separate, you know, that kind of understanding, which is what we, our practice is, is based on. Peter Overton. Um, is saying that long ago, when he was practicing at San Francisco Zen Center, it would have been about when, Peter? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. I have to do the math in my head. 80s. Early 80s. Early 1980s. 
that before every class and lecture or class? Class. Classes, they would recite all of the dharmas, That's right. which is a lot. 75. 75 dharmas. And if people weren't quite ready to do that, they'd have to pause till people got ready to do it, either from their notes or from memorizing it. But after a while, it got into their bodies of Peter's and others. And Peter feels that that was, in a way, a prelude and, and uh, a, an entree into emptiness. It's a particular text. After studying the Abhidharma Kosha, he, he felt that it led into emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, experience of emptiness. Is that saying it well enough, do you think? Yeah. Um, thank you. I wonder if the Savastavadans, with all those words, had the same experience. I'm doubting it, but I'm highly influenced by Red Pine's lovely way of talking about it. Um, yes, you had, did you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Um, my question, I think my general Remind me your name, because no. I... Margo. Margo. Um, Margo is saying, how do we balance or how do we see the relative effort or merit of studying the Dharma um, intellectually and practicing? And... I think in the early years, I concentrated on practice. I didn't get into this stuff at all. Um, I mean, I read what we were assigned to read for classes and was interested in people's lectures, but I was working on my zazen. Yeah, I'm pretty challenged by my zazen. Um, but I am a person who questions, you know, and you can't tell me this heart sutra we say every day comes from someplace and I don't go looking for it, you know. And I used to be more of an intellectual person before I went to Buddhist practice, so it kind of comes around again. And these scholars, you know, they're kind of deeply practicing in their work. 
Imagine it, how hard it is to be reading Sanskrit and Zakheti talking about these little fragments of Prajnaparamita sutras that have been found buried in southern India and trying to make sense of the writing. I mean, it's it's its own kind of deep practice. So, no answer to your question. <laughs> Both and all, and good luck with it. <laughs> Ask your teacher. <laughs> yeah, Susan. Thank you, Hannah. Um, back to Helen, Ellen's question about um, depending on, could it be also, could we think of uncovering or surrendering to? I remember when Doug Dreiner was Chusa, we talked a lot about surrender, you know, to the moment and continue to do that and watch what arises. And then at the beginning of your talk, you were reviewing your interest in science and how they were not so dissimilar. And I was thinking, you know, often a scientist makes a discovery comes at a point when the scientist isn't looking for something. It's a surprise. And maybe wisdom is a bit like that. It's something that arises before thinking. I don't know, I wonder what you think about that. Well, when we're, you all heard that I think because Susan's pretty close to the mic. Did you hear it? Yeah, good. Um, I love hearing what you said. We, we do sit, we do read, and things come to us, if we're lucky. I guess that's all I have to say. Kabir. Hi. Hi. Thank you for this wonderful talk. Um, when I was about four years old, um, I wanted to know uh, what Allah was in Afghanistan. And my friends and my family would tell me, well, it has no form, it does not have a gender, it does not have a color. Uh, the closest thing they were trying to tell me so I would be quiet would be, um, it's like a light. But I, I kept asking, and in 1996, when I met my friend Scott, and he, he started telling me about emptiness, uh, that my, my question was answered. That emptiness, boundlessness, emptiness, um, it, it, is, it is Allah. And a couple of years later, I went to Toronto in a, a Tibetan, um, uh, I think it was um, in one of the retreats in Vajrayogini, I don't remember, but there's a gal from Pakistan. She was sitting behind me and her name was Khadija. And she, she told me, Kabir, emptiness is Allah. And when we talk about boundlessness, when we talk about unborn, 
that for me that is and i i think i'm violating the law of emptiness if i'm giving it a name such as allah or the beloved um for me emptiness or boundlessness or allah is the collection of all living things that makes up that boundlessness that emptiness um we're all part of it but we're not and yeah it's beautiful so i th this this talk really really helped even answer more of my questions that i had so thank you so much thank you thank you thank you it's really beautiful come here thank you thank you I haven't been uh, much of a studier in answer to your question, but it found that that's more important to me these days. And one book in the Heart Sutra, since we say it every day, has been something that I've really wanted to understand the meaning of it. And um, I'd like to recommend um, The Other Shore by Thich Nhat Hanh. I found that very accessible, not academic very practice-oriented, and what came out for me is what he was saying in, uh, I don't know, 200 or so pages, was that the Heart Sutra is all about his favorite word, interbeing. So that was the main uh, summary of the book, the Heart Sutra's mm -hmm. interbeing. Yeah. She's recommending Thich Nhat Hanh's book the other shore she felt that it was very important that he wrote that that was a very recent book before he um, died maybe his last book and he felt that there had been so much misunderstanding for westerners in the heart sutra because of the translations and interpretations that he was trying to make it clearer to us what it was really about mm -hmm. to help us understand and um, his concept of interbeing, um, being what the Heart Sutra is talking about. <laughs> wow, everybody wants to talk. <laughs> Shall we ask Gary? Yeah. yeah I, I just wonder if you could um, um, express how you experience emptiness in your practice and maybe in your study of the Heart Sutra. Well, I don't think that you, um, uh, Gary is asking how I experience emptiness in my practice and my study. What a question. Um, I don't think, um, that the experience of emptiness is a word thing. I mean, you can like experience and then search for a word. How do you experience it? I think Susan was, was, was speaking of it. You know, it's the, 
you have nothing there, and then everything fills you. I was, you know, when I was reading Kaz Tanahashi and Joan Halifax's version, that bird was singing almost all the way through. And that, whoa, taking that in, but taking it in, right? There were no words about that bird and that song until later there had to be. Again. So that's your response? Sorry, yes, that's my response. I don't think it's fair that you ask me. Oh, Gary. Gary doesn't think it's fair. Maybe that's part of it. You're so present for me in our practice. I lean on you. Preston. Um, when I hear the word emptiness or, or boundlessness, it usually brings me to a heady, philosophical, metaphysical, eternal place. And then when I hear the word heart, that brings me to um, a more embodied, visceral, fragile place, and so I'm thinking about how the Heart Sutra is um, about boundlessness, and wondering if you can say something about the relationship between uh, our hearts and boundlessness, or why it's even called the Heart Sutra. Preston is talking about um, the concept of boundlessness feeling like an idea, a head thing. And um, the title of the sutra, the Heart Sutra, feeling like a body thing, a real vulnerable organ we have. Um, I feel pretty vulnerable, present, sitting in the middle of all of life. My heart, my whole body, my distractible presence. Um, I like that boundlessness or boundless. You, you don't know how you're affected by everybody you're sitting with and everybody you're moving with. I mean, we know we can catch a virus from someone we don't know. We catch so much from people we're with and the experiences we're with. 
May it go well. Oh, darn it. Can't do one more quickie. One We've more. got a couple questions online, too. Yeah, I know. Linda, please. Brave girl that I am calling on you. <laughs> oh, Karen was ahead of me, and I just want Karen to come back, and Paolo is after me, and I'd rather listen to Paolo than even talk. <laughs> am I really the last one? Yeah, you uh, are. And Karen will tell me later what she wanted to say. She took her hand down. Yeah. And that, that person, Paolo, I've heard him talk before, and I love listening to him. But anyway, I do I do here I am, and it's my turn. So I'll try to remember what I was going to say. Um, uh, yeah, I want to thank Kabir for what you said. And sometime we could talk about that, because I share that feeling that you're talking about. Um, I mean, the thing that I was going to say, and I'm holding Kaz's book, you know, right? I have <laughs> immediate access to all things Kaz Tanahashi here. Um, and looking at, starting with the question of depend on that Ellen asked, you know, it's a funny word. We don't like to think of depend on, you know, in our practice. It sort of sounds a little too gross. And then I thought some translations have rely on. And then I looked up the etymology of rely, and it has a more rich meaning than depend. And like that, and this gets me just to the thing I was going to say, um, as a lot of you know, I'm, a, uh, I'm also a translator of uh, texts from India. And it's just amazing how different a translation can be from another one, and neither one of them be accused of being inaccurate. They're just like, many ways to bring forth that thing. So I was going to suggest the idea of a class, of a Heart Sutra class, in which we bring together different translations and everybody does their own translation using the words, using the resources. Like, what do we know about the original Sanskrit and Chinese? And then everybody does their own Heart Sutra, experience the richness and mystery of the process of translation. That's all. Mm. Thank you. And thank you. It was a good talk.
Surpassable. 